Well, welcome back to the fellowship hall. This is almost a sign of like new life again, right? Does this feel better? I mean, it's good. I love our sanctuary, but this just feels like one semi-normal thing that we're back in here. So, and by the way, I, I, I may have said this to you before. I don't know if I did, but, but our friends here, Alan Duncan, um, his company rebuilt this whole thing. Remember what this thing used to be like? Alan came in and refurbed it for like basically for cost and just gave us a massive gift so that we could be here and, and whether we're worshiping or once upon a time eating meals together, um, sending out the word. And so it's so we've missed being in here for the last six months. But I really appreciate your kindness to us and all the ways that you and your whole family really blesses our church. As Alpha is getting ramped back up, so many good things are kind of starting again. Um, so here's what we're going to do. Um, we are going to be doing a mini-series um, on the last two chapters of Revelation. I want to give you a little bit of context for that. Um, and I don't know, we may, be, we may do this for four weeks or 12 weeks. We'll just take it as it comes. We'll see how long it goes. Um, it's just the last two chapters. Now, um, I have mentioned to you in the past... Um, you, you may remember this. I have this vision in my mind of like, here's an individual, right? Their life is like this pole, and there's these two guidelines, one that goes down to the past and one that goes up towards the future, these anchor lines that kind of hold our lives, uh, you know, in a place of truth, right? That holds us, that, that, that anchors us. Anybody remember, anybody, is this vivid at all? Does anybody remember, what is, the, what is the line, as we look back, what is this guideline for us? Do you remember this? Do you know? Kelly, what is it? Gratitude. Gratitude, right? So we look, we're, we're grateful for all that God has done. We're thankful. Man, you did this thing in the past, and that's one of the things that anchors us. Problem is, it tends to be something that we overestimate the power of. We tend to think that if you were grateful for all these things that I had done, then you would be obedient. You would be true. All these things would happen. And it doesn't work that well, which is why we need a second guideline that kind of runs towards the future. And what's that one? Hope. Hope. Hope eats gratitude for breakfast, Okay. Hope has infinitely more power to transform your life, okay? Our appreciation for things in the past really only has transformative value in so much as it gives us reason to be hopeful for the future. That if Jesus did this for me in the past, well then, that actually increases my confidence that he might be kind to me again. And it is the anticipation of future good that really transforms our lives. But we don't tend to recognize this. My, my experience, we haven't, we, that's, that's an underappreciated reality. And so we'll often try to use gratitude to stir up or to gin up obedience or faithfulness. And it's not sufficient. It's just, gratitude's just simply not strong enough to do that. What we need, what we must have, is a future anticipation of good. And what that means is that we should be, we, we hope to be, it's better if we are more aware have a, have a more vivid consciousness of what God is going to do in the future. What is coming? What lies ahead? How, are things, how is this story going to end? The more powerful that is in our minds, the more vivid and clear and rich and concrete that is to us, the more resources we have available to be transformed in the present. Okay? We tend to be more aware of the things for which we can be grateful because we've already seen them. They're visible to us. The future is vague and the future is you know, fuzzy, and we don't see it, and so we don't have as much hope as we should, but it is really, of these two lines, it's not a fair fight. This is the line that's going to change you. So I think there's an awful lot of value, a lot of, lot of uh, worth, if we can have a clear picture of the future that will call us forward and anchor us in the present moment. That's the thesis. Make sense? Okay, now, for a quick commercial break, because I forgot to say this, 
two weeks from today, on September 24th, we will not be having this class. This room will be dedicated to a parents' meeting um, for the for the youth group. Which you're welcome. If you have, if not welcome, you're strongly encouraged. If you have kids in our youth group, please do come. But we won't be doing this here. It'll be Will, probably Whitney, I would assume, um, talking to the talking to the parents of the youth. So if you got kids, come here. Then I won't be. Well, I'll be here because I'll be a parent. I am a parent, but I won't be teaching. Okay, I forgot to say that earlier. So, okay. So when we think about this hope. The this hope, this future anticipation of enormous good is sprinkled throughout the, the entire scriptures, right? It's all throughout the Old Testament. It's all throughout the New Testament. But it is most vividly compressed and packed into the last two chapters of the Bible. It's Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. It's vivid. It's, it's picturesque. Um, and, it, and it gives us an enormous amount of information about the things, the hope that should be pulling us forward, okay? But there is good news and there is bad news about that. The good news is that he's done this. He hasn't left us in the darkness to wander, right? He has communicated these vivid, life-changing truths for us, for all the things that we need, okay? What are some of the, you tell me, what are some of the things that need to be part of, if you're going to have a hopeful future, what needs to someday happen? What are the things that you beg, now that this better happen, what, what are those things that you long to see true in the future? What sort, you could broad or specific, what sorts of things do we long for? Do you, does your soul need as an anchor drawing you forward? New body. New body, okay, yeah, right? That, that, that this, what, this, this body of death that is decaying, that is going blind, that is going bald, that everything is falling, that one day he's going to raise us, we'll be like him, right? And we get this, this is going to happen. You will get a new resurrection body. It says that he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. From which I gather, we're going to look like this. We're going to be hominids. And yet Jesus could do cool things. He could walk through walls, apparently. He could also fly. That would be clutch. I don't know. But, but we'll get a new body. Okay, good. What else? What else? What else needs to be part of the ingredient of your future hope? We meet him. Okay. Will we actually get him? Right, right now, we walk with him, but he's invisible. And he's silent. And he's formless. Will we actually? Can I see him, Don? Will I see him face to face? Will I, will I always experience him through the 10,000 removes of a, of a created order, or will I actually get him? And the answer is we will, right? So, man, that is a huge promise that he is, he is the gift. He is the, the grace of the gospel. So, excellent. What else? What else, what else do we need to have located up here in the future? Yeah, Robin? Peace in the midst of chaos. You say peace in the midst of chaos? Well, just peace. We've already had too much. Yes, peace. We've had too much chaos. So, will... The world be ordered, as they say in, in Lord of the Rings in that great scene where Samwise wakes up. He says, will all the sad things come untrue, right? Will there finally be a place where it's no longer chaotic? And the answer to that is yes, right? I'll give you just a quick little hint. Do you know what the primary metaphor, and it is a metaphor, we'll talk about this more, that Revelation uses to say the chaos is over? The sea will be no more. The sea, very good, Ray. The sea will be no more. The sea is a place of churning chaos. And so when Revelation says the sea will be no more, it doesn't mean it's going to be a desert. It means that all the place where the monsters live, this unpredictable, murderous ocean, there will be no more, there'll be no more chaos. There'll be an ocean, but there won't be this place from which the destruction comes, right? So we will be at peace. Okay, what else do you need located up here? It's a whole bunch of stuff, and we'll just get a couple more out of your out of your mind. 
no pain, shame. Okay, like how about that? What if like pain, shame, there's a, there's a great passage, you'll see this later today, well maybe later this month, who knows, where it says sorrow and sighing will flee away. And John draws from that and says he will wipe away every tear. Is it really, can we envision a world that's not marked by pain and death and loss, right? These are things, if, if this thing's not just some fairy tale, but it's actually real, and not only that, but you can go there, you can be part of it, right? Then if, if you believe that, if you could see those things, if those promises were sure, that is an anchor that drives you forward. I think one of the things that the world desperately longs for right now is justice. We're deeply conscious of a lack of justice in the world. But did you know that every time the New Testament talks about justice, it always locates it in the final days, in the, in the world to come. It, it's incredibly pessimistic about our experience of justice in this moment. It never says, you know, yeah, I know, things are going to get better. Just go, you know, go to a rally and we can make the world a just place. It doesn't say that, right? The justice comes in the new world. And so, we, so there's a warning. Yeah, you're going to live in an unjust world for a long, 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 long time, but not forever. <laughs> justice will come, but it's not really going to come until, until he comes. It's an interesting thing because the Old Testament speaks a great deal about justice, and we see the value of it. It's actually a predominant theme that society should be just. But in the New Testament, this is a strange thing, but justice is replaced in the New Testament with love. Justice is not a particularly high value in the New Testament. What it constantly says is, you know what, I know it's an unjust world, I know it's terrible, love your enemies anyway. Justice, the very nature of justice is keeping score. But 1 Corinthians 13 says, love keeps no record of wrongs. And in the New Testament, love eats justice. But it promises one day, he will make all things just. But it's probably not within our capacity to do so, which is incredibly aggravating. My son, Max, he's in Hawaii. He purchased a car, a used car. He bought a $2,000 used Toyota, and he got a $700 tax bill. Do you know why? Because in the great state of Hawaii, when you buy a car, if the previous owner didn't register it, you've got to pay all of their back taxes. Are you kidding me? What? Okay, this is an injustice. <laughs> but it is just the way it is, right? But what a ridiculous thing. And so we're making phone calls like, no, yeah, that's actually how it works here. And there is no appeals court, okay? So there you go. So you're going to live with all kinds of injustice, and yet in the midst of it, just love your enemies. This is what we're called to do, okay? So we long for justice. What else do we long for? Justice. A whole bunch of stuff. New bodies. Anything else? Kelly Sue? What about seeing your salvation of your loved ones? Right. Maybe that's not my individual hope, but, but my hope for others' hope. For oh, it is. Yeah. I'm going to be wrecked if that's. Yes. So in case you couldn't hear Kelly, what we, one of the things we long for is the people that we love would be there too. Well, I mean, how many of you love somebody that doesn't presently know Jesus? I mean, like, could any of us not? Lord, we long for this, right? And so what I think that, you know, Lewis said something. He says, I think three things will surprise me when I get to the world to come. Number one, who's there? Number two, who's not there? And number three, that I'm there, right? And so we don't know how that story's gonna end, but our great hope is that his, he's overwhelmingly kind and compassionate, and we long to see the people that we love experience his love and his mercy, right? Kind of woven into that, I think one of the things we long for is to be in a world of love. 
that's what that's what your your soul. If, if justice has been replaced by love, and it, and that the world to come we will finally get justice, it does not mean that we will cease to get love. In fact, Edwards preached a great sermon. If you like, I've tried to like tease you guys into reading Jonathan Edwards from time to time. Um, if you do choose to read Jonathan Edwards, I would really say start with his sermons because to whatever extent he can, he kind of waters things down for normal people. Okay, his books are going to be like good grief. Okay, but his sermons are semi comprehensible and um, he wrote a, he preached a sermon called heaven is a world of love and he explores this in like every imaginal facet it's you just google it how stuff's been out of copyright for like 500 years so listen i'm going to read you an excerpt from this because it's so it's so beautiful it says this there's so many things he there's like 27 points to any edward sermon but he says love in heaven is always mutual listen to this it is always met with answerable returns of love, with returns that are proportioned to its exercise. Such returns love always seeks, and just in proportion as any person is beloved, in that same proportion is his love desired and prized. Listen to this, and in heaven, this desire of love, or this fondness for being loved, will never fail of being satisfied. No inhabitant of that blessed world will ever be grieved with the thought that they are slighted by those that they love or that their love is not fully and fondly returned. As the saints will love God with an inconceivable ardency of heart and to the utmost of their capacity so they will know that he has loved them from all eternity and still loves them and will continue to love them forever. And God will then gloriously manifest himself to them and they shall know Hear this, they shall know that all the happiness and glory which they are possessed of are the fruits of his love. And with the same ardor and fervency will the saints love the Lord Jesus Christ. And their love will be accepted and they shall know that he has loved them with a faithful, yea, even with a dying love. And they shall then be more sensible than now that they are and what great love it manifested in Christ that he should lay down his life for them. And then will Christ open to their view the great fountain of love in his heart for them and beyond all that they ever saw before. It's going to be exceptionally great. And we need to know that all these things, that the justice, that the love, that the restored bodies, like all of it, we need to have this picture that, okay, today, it's, today is worth living and it's worth being obedient and it's worth doing these things because unimaginable good lies in your future. Not only that, but that the work of evangelism is worth doing because this unimaginable good could lie in the future for those that we love. That everything matters, everything in our lives, you guys, it is anchored in this reality of what is coming. But... If what is coming is just some vagary of something about something that I forget what it says, then that, that will have very little, that won't draw you forward. We need, we need to have it, okay? So the good news is that he has revealed all these things for us and that we are not left to be hopeless or just with vague nothingness, but it's, these things are real, okay? But there's bad news too. You know what the bad news is? The means by which he's communicated to, the, to us is in a language that most of us do not speak. And so 
the richness and the value in particular in these last two chapters of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, is by and large inaccessible to us. Do um, you guys know what the name of the language is written in? And it's not Greek or Hebrew, but what's the, do you know what the genre of communication is? Of Revelation? Of these chapters? There's a particular literary genre. Yeah, what is it? Apocryphal. Apoc- uh, not, very close. You started right, but then it's so apocryphal, very close. Um, it's, it's, it lives in the same box as that word. Apocalypse. Apocalypse or apocalyptic. So apocryphal is these are the books um, that are kind of like of questionable um, authority and authenticity, um, essentially kind of in between the Testaments. Apocalyptic is the, is the genre that we use to describe the book of Revelation. So what does the word apocalyptic mean? Revelation. Okay, so we're hearing Revelation, we're hearing end times. Yeah, let's, let's get a consensus. What is the word, if I said the apocalypse, what does that mean? Do you guys have a, other clues? What's that? The apocalypse. The apocalypse. So what, yeah, what, is the, what, does the, what does that word, first of all, what is it, there's, there's, a, there's a wrong answer that is the common answer. What does it seem like it means? Destruction. Destruction, right? Yeah, so apocalypse has come to mean like the obliteration of everything. Right, everything just gets ruined and everything's destroyed, and it's going to be, you know, we would have if we if we have, you know, remember when it snowed like a half an inch in Atlanta a couple years ago, and they called it the snowpocalypse, right? Because like, you know, it's going everything's going to be destroyed. We we think that the word apocalypse means destruction. That you know, everything is like burning in fire, but it doesn't. Bob, what does it actually mean? It means revelation. That's where we get the word. Yeah, that's exactly right. So literally, apocalyptic means, probably the most direct translation would be the uncovering. So the the revealing. Like, ta-da, here it is. There's some secret, and it's it's a mystery. It's not known, but let's peel the lid back, and now you get to see it. Okay, that's why the name name of the book, the the revelation, is, is literally means apocalypse. Okay, it is the revealing. The demonstration, the, the showing forth of a mystery that had been previously hidden. And by the way, here's, here's your pro tip on Revelation. There's only one of them, okay? If you ever talk, people always talk about the book of Revelations, and it makes them sound dumb, okay? So don't be those, don't be, don't sound dumb, okay? There's just one. It's not Revelations. It's just, re, it's one revelation, one revealing of all that is. And what's really tricky about it is it is a hard genre. We don't speak apocalypse, we don't know what to do with it. And so when you read it, it's just like baffling and bewildering. And so you either, you, there's two general errors. What do you think of the errors that we commit with when it comes to Revelation? There's broadly two. Okay, so everything, we take everything literal and we interpret all these weird things in an overly literal way. It's huge, okay? That's absolutely, what's the opposite error that we commit with, with Revelation? You ignore it. Ignore it completely. It's just weird. Just stay away, right? And so generally speaking, like in, co- in college, with college students, like when I've led to 9 million Bible studies, the people either don't want to study Revelation because it's too bizarre and we just let it go, or you have some like, you know, sophomore leading, he doesn't know anything about anything, and you do all these terrible interpretations of it, okay? So we either take it super literally, which cannot work, or we just ignore it completely. But what we want to do, and what we're going to do, is we're, we're going to jump in, but there are two great rules that you have to follow. We've talked about that a little bit in here, right? So number one, Shane, it's not literal, right? It's a metaphor. It's images. It's pictures. Higginbotham, so good to see you guys. How are you? Welcome. Um, and you're welcome to cuddle if you want. Yeah, go right for that. Okay, so we have to figure out, okay, it's, it's, an, it's, an, it's not straightforward. And, it, and it's like John goes out of his way to make it hard to interpret literally. 
but we do our best anyway, right? And people try to smash things up. But it's not meant to be literal. But it is, it is true. Okay, it's true. It's just not literal. And so if you're going to find an answer, you've got all these weird things. We'll see this eventually. Um, It says that like, there's a list of all these jewels, these 12 jewels, that the walls are comprised of ruby and, I don't know, topaz, and I can't think of any other jewels. Um, all these walls, and so you may, en- you may envision, okay, in the world to come, um, there's going to be walls made out of big freaking rubies, you know? Um, I don't think that's accurate. Okay, that's what it says. It is what it says, but that's not what it means. But there is an answer key, right? Anybody know? Can anybody think of a place in the old, oh, oh, so here's this, so the, the answer key, I just blew it. The answer key is, what's the answer key? Daniel. It's the Old Testament, right? Not always Daniel, but sometimes Daniel. But Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Genesis, the answer key to Revelation is the Old Testament. All of the imagery, 100, maybe 100% of the imagery in Revelation is drawn from the Old Testament. Over and over and over again. And so when you find like the walls are made out of rubies and jewels and all these things. I don't know why ruby is the only gem I can think of. But sapphires, blue, okay. Where, where does that come from? Any idea where that would come from in the Old Testament? The breastplate of the high priest. The breastplate of the high priest, right? So it's exactly right. So the, the, the high priest would wear on his chest this, this array of jewels. Each one representing uh, one of the tribes of Israel. And so when you see this language, you're like, where is that coming from? We go find it, and that's going to give us a clue to start pulling on that thread and see, what, see where it makes sense, okay? So the, the, the only way that we're ever going to understand the book of Revelation is if we do the work to understand what is the Old Testament data source that he's drawing from. But if we do that, you guys, I promise to you is there's going to be a payoff, okay? It's worth this is going to be worth doing, but it's just going to be a little bit complex, okay? See, as Lewis talked about, he gave an illustration once about um, learning Greek poetry. And that if you want to, when you begin to read and begin to study and learn Greek, it's arduous, right? You're learning grammar, and you're memorizing language, and figuring out syntax, and it's not any fun, right? But if you will do the work to learn the Greek grammar, so Lewis says, I have not tested this, then you have the opportunity to enjoy Greek poetry that English poetry apparently doesn't compare with, at least so he says, right? And if you ever want to get to the heights of the poetry, you've got to do the drudgery of the grammar, okay? And while I wouldn't exactly want to equate reading the Old Testament with drudgery, I would say that if we're really going to unpack Revelation and have the mind-blowing experience of that is what John meant, that's what he's saying, that's the good news, that's the hope that drives me forward, if we're going to ever get that, then we've got to first do the, do the work in the Old Testament to understand what he's pointing to, okay? And that's what I'm going to, that's going to be my challenge to try to take you from like zero to a hundred, to take you from something that might be opaque to you, right? That it, and maybe you already know exactly, maybe if I say Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, maybe that's boom for you. We talk about Isaiah 60. Maybe that's one of your favorite passages. Maybe the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, would show astonishing correspondence to the last three chapters of the Bible, Revelation 20, 21, and 22. Maybe those, maybe those comparisons are already present for you or, or they're parts of it. But I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of this is going to be like, this is going to be a stretch. 
But I think it's going to be a really fun stretch, and I'm really excited to, to do the work together to make sense of all the source material that John is drawing from and to see what it means here. Because if we get that, if we can understand what's going on in Ezekiel, if we understand Zechariah, if we understand Isaiah, this is why I'm saying this might take a while. If we can understand those things and we know what John is alluding to, what he's citing, what he's quoting, the promises he's drawing on, then these things become, instead of just like a bunch of weirdness, it becomes like heart-filling, hope-producing, joy-inducing anticipation of a future good. And that's where the money is. That's the payoff. Okay? So far so good? So here's what we're going to do. So book people. So I made you guys something yesterday. And this is it. Okay, so these guys are going to pass this out for you. So what I've done, well, I'll wait. I'm just going to be silent here while these guys pass it out. But I will warn you, your version is already obsolete, and I'm going to make you a new version. Okay? But what I've done is I went through, and the top of the page, gosh, I almost missed the edge. If you look at this, at the top of the page, you've got the straight text of Revelation 21 to 22. Okay? It's going to run across the top. That's just in the normal, you know, Roman-style font. Below the line is my attempt to give you as much of the Old Testament basis for these passages as seemed feasible. I'm sure, I'm quite sure that I didn't get enough, that I didn't get all of it. And some, sometimes there, was, there are conscious omissions where I'm like, I'm just going to fill up the page if I do all these. And so I've chosen some passages as a stand-in for some of these. And in some places, I'm sure I just missed them. I just don't, don't, don't know them all. But after I made the version that you're looking at, I went home and I read through it again. And then I regretted about a dozen passages that I should have included, so I made myself a new version. Okay, so, but I'd already printed like a hundred of these, and so I didn't want to throw them out. So probably before this class is over, I'll make yet more changes, and I'll give you another version maybe in a, in a few weeks. Okay, got more here. Anybody missing them? How we doing? Okay, so here's your, here's the, here's the, uh, is, whenever you give somebody a book, it's always like you're requiring three hours of their life now. You know, it's like, here, I got you a book, now go read it. Well, now I don't want to read it. Now i got to spend three hours reading your book. So you have to go read this now, which is not very kind of me in some regard. But here's my suggestion. You could. You could do a couple things. You could read through just the tops. It's just straight Revelation. 21, 22. Nothing, nothing fancy up top above the line. Just read it. And it would be like reading your Bible because it, it is that. It is in the NIV because that's what I like. So there you go. But you could also read like a page at a time. You could read this. And then you go down and you say, oh, it'll, it'll be obvious. For the most part, for the most, maybe not 100% of the time, but by and large, it should be apparent to you. When you're reading this first thing and you read the lower, you're like, oh, I see. That sounds like maybe that was on John's mind when he said that. Okay? That's your second option. Read a page, read the top, then read the bottom. Read the top, read the bottom, and begin to be familiar with these things. Or you can do this, and this is really the good idea. You can read the, read the top, and then you could go read the bottom, and then you can go look up the bottom in context. Because as I said, this isn't comprehensive. There's context to this. There's a few, and if you look through this, there's a few key passages that you can be like, wow, he keeps going to this. Like, just look at the first page. Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 62. To get a sense that that section of Isaiah maybe has some value to us, you're going to find lots and lots and lots of Isaiah. Or if you skip, skip open to, um, like, verse 12, it had a great high gate. Do you see this? I should have numbered these pages. 
So what would that be? Just turn one page, and then you'll see we're in Ezekiel 48. We're in Ezekiel 40, Ezekiel 40. That whole passage, Ezekiel 40 to 48, that would be, be a movement really worth understanding. John loves this thing, because, well, for, for reasons that are obvious. Or it might be, some of the, some of the time, if you, if you scroll forward, go to chapter 22, um, which is not, is it past the center? Yeah, so open to the center, go one more. And you'll find Revelation 22, which says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. This, probably my favorite, which is why we're starting here. Um, what John is doing here is he's pulling together so many threads. There's, a, there's not one massive passage here. He's drawing out of Psalm 46 from Ezekiel 47 from that same passage. From Zechariah 14, which is near to my heart. From Genesis, the river. Do you remember the river and the tree of life that we're barred from in the, in the garden? Well, we get it. You're not barred from the tree of life forever. The gift of eternity will be given to you. You will live forever. And this tree that we were not allowed to touch, and there's an angel with a flaming sword, no more. You can eat the leaves, okay? Have at it. And the very leaves are for the healing. He's drawing from all of this, and again, more, more of Ezekiel 47. And then a whole bunch more that I just couldn't fit, so I shoved them all in at the bottom. We're going to see when he, and then there's more, there's surprises coming. This river, what this river is, yea, even who this river is, We'll get there in due course. That'll be a little bit later. That's going to blow your mind, okay? Lots and lots of things that he's pulling together. And what, so what your assignment, if you choose to accept it, is these next weeks, you could use this as a quiet time guide, right? So if you haven't yet developed the habit of uh, having, maybe you set aside 10 minutes a day or 20 minutes a day or 30 minutes a day, there's just you alone and a Bible. And I'm just going to read it. I'm just going to, I can't read the whole thing all at once. It wouldn't stick if I did. But what if, what if every day, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, you read a chapter, you read a passage, you consider it. This could be a great guide for the next couple of months if you wanted to. You could read a passage, you can go back, you can read some of the Old Testament. Just get, just get familiar with it. And if you don't, if it doesn't give you all of its mysteries, don't worry about it. That's cool. Let's just get familiar and we can walk through this thing together. And I think if we do that, then in a month or two or three, whenever we're done, I think that the sweetness of these promises will be richer and more meaningful to you. And I think it's going to be really, really fun. Okay. That's my pitch. So, first of all, what questions do you have about what, is anything I said already? You're like, ah, I'm already lost and I don't want to come back because I don't know where you're going with this. <laughs> what questions does that rise for you? <clears throat> Produce. No questions. Bob. Question, but one thing I always found helpful with Revelation is the word like. Like, L-I-K-E. Very good. You uh, can't really describe it. It was like. That's right. And I think that's a helpful reminder to start describing things. Because it's not that. He, he doesn't know how to identify It's like a, like, good. you know, gold that you can see through glass, you know. And mm -hmm. Yes. So what Bob is saying is that one of the recurring themes, and this is the nature of metaphor, or is it simile? Maybe it's simile, um, is when you say something is like something else. It's not that, but it's, it's like, you know, you, it's like describing a dream to somebody, right? 
when you're describing a dream, like, well, it was like this, and then this happened, and that was weird, and it was, like, it was the house I grew up in, except it was on the beach, and, right? And it's all, and so that's what John is dealing with. It's a vision. It's not, this is not what is. It's what he's seeing. So what is depicted is not necessarily what's going to happen, but it is, it is, it is opening us to, to see what is actually going to happen. There is a real hope, and we can find it, but we have to be, that, we have to be willing to accept, okay, it's not, this is not a videotape of what will transpire but it's revealing things to us. It's apocalyptic, uncovering things to us. Yep, Kelly. Um, you told us the genre, but will you tell us a little bit about like where John was and when, is this the last book that he, is this the last book of the Bible that was written? Sure, yeah. On occasion. Okay, so Kelly's asking for just a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of the book of Revelation. So that's, that's a great idea. So first of all, I've, I've mentioned a couple times that John said this or John drew from this. Who's the John that we're talking about? Yeah, John, the disciple who Jesus loved. So John wrote the fourth of the Gospels, the bears his name. He's Jesus' best friend. That's probably the easiest way to think of him. He's the one that always refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Because the thing he couldn't get over is like, he loves me, right? And you see this, this tends to be the mark of a Christian when you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean he loves me? <laughs> this is what, this is what. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Edmund does this in a line, the witch in the wardrobe. He's explaining to Eustace about who Jesus is. Well, who Aslan is, but Aslan's Jesus. Who Aslan is. And he says, he's the, he's the lion, the great lion, the son of the emperor across the sea who saved Narnia and saved me. There's something that has to land. He's not just the Savior, he's my Savior. And so John has this very intimate relationship with Jesus. And he writes the Gospel of John, and then he writes three short books. Well, one is relatively length. First John is normal. Second and, second and third John are little tiny things. And then at the very end, this is the final book, the last book written in the New Testament, probably written around 90 AD. Some would say it was written earlier, but I think 90 is generally probably your I think the answer is probably around 90, but late in the game, um, but still within this first generation of believers, he writes this revelation. And he had, somebody, somebody shouted the word Patmos. Who said that? Who said Patmos? Okay, what, why did you mention Patmos? What does this mean? Because um, he was exiled to, to an island in Patmos. That's right. So he, he was exiled as a punishment. So a lot, of the, a lot of the early church leaders were killed. Uh, John was actually punished. He was boiled. He was he was terribly punished but survived and was exiled to the island of Patmos and it was there on the island that he has this vision this this series of dreams and and revelations this uncoverings that he records for us so it's written around 90 by this guy that loves Jesus he's known as sometimes known as John the Elder because we think that he is the oldest surviving uh, of, of the of the first generation of the ch church leaders it's kind of like who is it um who the heck is it Jefferson and Adams that died on the same day? Is that right? John Adams. Thomas Jefferson. So like it's the 4th of July on the 50th anniversary. So whatever that would be, seven, or 1826. Is that right? 1826. Uh, TJ and Adams both died on the same day, like hours apart, I think, right? So they're the, they're the last living members of this generation of the Revolutionary War. That's kind of who John is, right? He is the, he's the old man, John the Elder, and so he's writing... In this position of wisdom to a group of people who are suffering terribly. And so, what's the genre of Revelation? 
Okay, that's actually not true. So, sorry, suckers, you believe me. It's actually a smash-up of three genres, and this is actually really important. It is apocalyptic. You're absolutely right. That's true. But it's not only apocalyptic. There's two other genres that are woven into this. Second one is relatively obvious. The third one is less obvious. You might know the second. What is it? Poetry. Uh, uh, sort of poetry, but you're close to poetry. I'll say with prophecy. Is that what you said? Prophecy? Did I hear prophecy? Okay, so it's, it's prophetic. It's predicting the future. It's speaking for God. So it is apocalyptic, and it is, and, and it is prophetic, which is a little bit of a cheat because apocalyptic is almost always prophetic in its nature, but it's, it, has, it has threads of apocalypse. It has threads of prophecy, and there's one more that is less understood and really important, and it leaves the people screwing it up all the time. What's the last genre of revelation? It is the most... It's one of the top two genres in the New Testament. It's a letter. It is epistle. Okay, it's a letter. And why, the reason that's significant is that letters are written about a particular occasion. They're written to a group of people about something going on. And what that means, this is really important. It's underappreciated the way we come to Revelation. John wrote to someone in his immediate contemporary experience who is experiencing real genuine difficulties and he's writing to encourage. He's writing to give them hope. And what we tend to do is we tend to ignore the fact that Revelation is, is an epistle, is a letter, and we just assume that it's had no relevance for the entire church for the last 2,000 years and it was written for us in 2020. All right? And this is not true. It mattered. What's that? In America in particular, yes. It is written to the United States of America in 2020. But in fact, it was written to the church in the, in the Roman Empire in the year 90 AD. And so it was pertinent to them, and it was meaningful to them, and it addressed issues in their lives. And so we have a tendency to just, like, chuck it way into the future, and that's a bad idea. If we're going to understand what it does mean for us, so Romans 14 says, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Okay? The Old Testament was written to a particular audience, right? So Deuteronomy was a speech given to the Israelites, and yet it still has meaning for us, right? Uh, the Psalms were written for the church to worship God with, and yet it still has meaning for us. But if we're going to figure out what Deuteronomy means, if we're going to figure out what the Psalms mean, if we're going to make sense of Chronicles, in particular is how Chronicles are distinct from Kings, we can't do that if we don't understand what the original audience thought it meant, what it, how it was relevant to them. Because our meaning will always be influenced by their meaning and drawn from and shaped by. So in the same way, you can't make proper sense of Revelation, though many have tried, absent the understanding that it was a letter written to a group of people at a particular time undergoing certain things. So we've got to get the epistle nature. It's epistle, it's prophecy, and it's apocalypse. And so it's friggin' hard, okay? So strap in. Kelly. And what was that circumstance? Was it near a burning law? Okay, so Kelly says, so what was that circumstance? What, what is this? What's it like to be a Christian in the Roman Empire in 90 AD? Worship Nero or die. It is hard, right? This was under the uh, persecution of the nation. Absolutely. Enormous persecution, right? Famously, Nero is lighting his garden parties with human burning Christians, okay? It is a difficult time. The beast, who's the beast? Who is the, what's the number of the beast? It's broad, it's, it's, the answer is Nero, okay? Just to punch that balloon, okay? It's Nero. But 
we, we'll, we'll get, well, we probably won't even get into Nero, but that's, that's other chapters of Revelation. But you've got to understand, it meant something to these guys, and our, our proper understanding will be, has to be influenced by that, okay? So it's apocalypse, it's prophecy, it's an epistle, and it's going to give up its secrets, okay? We're going to shake the tree, and it's going to, it's going to reveal itself to you. Okay, these are great. Other questions or thoughts kind of at an introductory level to this thing? <laughs> Folks are leaving. You guys got to go do churchy things? So I'll probably let you go soon. Okay, give me, I'll take five more minutes, but if you all leave, I'll just talk to Kelly, so it'll be okay. All right, we good? Okay, so here is, here's what I want you to do, just my suggestion to you if you want to do this, is, is do everything that I just suggested one at a time. First, just read chapters 21 to 22. Just read it. Now, if you don't like this version, just read it in your Bible. Just do whatever. There's nothing unique about this. But read through it, okay? Then, if you want to, we're just going to start at the top, and we're going to work our way through it. You might begin the process of reading this, read it all straight through. It'll take you about five minutes, right? And then you could read it a little more slowly and read this and then look for this and just begin to notice the verbal echoes. It might even be fun for you to read this and don't look at this and be like, can I think of any Old Testament passage where it says something about, I don't know, God loving his, loving his people like a bride? Is there any word that it talks about um, God being that we will be his people and God will be their God. New heaven and new earth. Did John make that up? Or did that show up anywhere in the Old Testament? See, if you quiz yourself as you go and then just check. Here's the answer key. It's actually Isaiah 65 and 66. The place the new heavens and new earth language comes from. So you might, you'll see that. Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. Go ahead and just read both chapters if you want to. Right? So just go through and be like, I'm just going to read those two chapters and see what's going on there. Right? Then maybe you'll notice, oh, is it going on from actually Isaiah 61, 62? Okay, never mind. I'm going to read all those let. Isaiah stops at 66, so I'm going to read the last five or six chapters of Isaiah just to get some idea, and it's going to be full of stuff that's bewildering. No problem. Don't worry about it. Just start to lay it down a little bit at a time. And if we will do that work, and you go look up some of these things, you'll begin to notice that John's got some favorite passages that he's drawing from. Um, you'll, you, may, you might even discover that Isaiah 60 is, in fact, a tying together of all the themes of the rest of Isaiah. And so if you really want to understand Revelation, you've got to understand Isaiah 60. If you want to understand Isaiah 60, you've got to understand all of Isaiah. Sorry, right? So this is what I'm saying. You've got to do the grammar work if you want to ultimately enjoy the poetry. But we'll get as much as you can get, and we'll just kind of walk it through. And I think that we will make discoveries. You will inevitably see things that I've never noticed and draw connections. There's so much in here. But I think it's going to be a really rich time. Okay? So I've got just a minute. I, I want to read it. I'm just going to read it. We're going to run through it. And, uh, and then we'll go. Okay? So just... Sit back. If you like to see when you hear, then you can follow along. But if you just want to close your eyes, it's a dream, it's a vision, it's a picture of a future. Really good stuff is happening. Here's what it's going to be. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning 
in the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And he who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the angels who had seen the seven bowls full of seven last plagues came to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high walls of 12 gates with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates to the east and three in the north and three in the south, three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the angel who had talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. And he measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which angel was using. And the wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. And the foundations of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, Seventh, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, crystal, something, jacinth, and, the, and amethyst. And the twelve gates, the twelve pearls, twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each gate made like a single pearl. Imagine the size of that. What is that, oyster? Clam? I don't know. Where do the pearls come from? Huge. The great city, the great street of the city was a pure gold, like transparent glass. I didn't, this is interesting, I didn't see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. And the nations will walk by its light. And hear this, guys. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. For there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and the servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They won't need the light of a lamp but the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign. They will reign. Did you see that? Forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, the one who heard and saw these things, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said, do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right 
continue to do right and let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. Did you know there will be a reward? I will give to each one, everyone, according to what he's done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. That's all Isaiah 55. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Grace to the Lord Jesus. Be with God's people. All right, we're going to make it all clear. So read it, read the background, and come back, and we're going to have some fun conversations.